Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. We spent the last couple of weeks in a little bit of a mini-series considering our culture and how it measures up to God's design for human sexuality as it's revealed in the scripture, and we want to bring that mini-series to an end. The first week we considered the question, how did we get here, and we took a little tour through history and, and considering biblically how, how a culture comes to the point where we find ourselves and we acknowledge the fact that we moved from being a culture that was founded on the revelation of God. We were dependent upon the word of God for our understanding of life and how to arrange a society, how to, how to write our founding documents. We turned away from revelation and instead became increasingly a culture where truth became grounded in the individual. It was no longer something that came to us from the outside, but it became something in our minds that we determined from within. And with the abandonment of revelation, we then turned to rebellion in this culture. We rebelled against God, we ignored his word, we've ignored his will. We have been doing what is right in our own eyes. And the next step in, in, in this digression was that we went from revelation and living in light of what God had given to us and living unto God, we defied him in rebellion. And then that rebellion consequently led to divine retribution. Our abandonment of God, says Romans 1, results in God's abandonment of us. God takes sin seriously. And one of the evidences that God has given this country over, this culture over, is the absolute sexual debauchery that exists in our midst. And we trace that through Romans 1. None of this, we said, was new. Egypt has seen it. Assyria saw it. Babylon saw it. The Greeks saw it. The Romans saw it, and this is our day and our time, and this is the time, brother and sister in Christ, that God has placed you by his providential design to be here and to impact this culture, to live at this time, which is sad for each of us in some ways. It's hard to watch your country slip sliding away. We have sowed the wind and we are reaping the whirlwind. We went then the second week from that question of how did we get here to understanding biblically what God has designed sexually. And we looked at a very simple and straightforward outline really of biblical sexuality. We said that God made mankind male and female and that answered the transsexual movement in our culture by saying that there are but two genders the Bible is binary, you are either male or female, and you need look no further than your physicality to understand what God has made you to be. God defines us, we do not look inwardly and define ourselves. Secondly, we saw that God gave the covenant bond of marriage to a biological male and a biological female for life. And that answered the question of our day about homosexual marriage and polygamy and a whole host of other questions that our, our culture is throwing up. God then also created intimacy, sexual intimacy, for husband and for wife alone. We confronted the sexual immorality of our day, whether homosexual or heterosexual, and we said that sex is reserved for a married couple, male and female for life, both for the pleasure of it and procreation. Well, that is a brief review. And, and what you come to here as we come to this third week in this series, as we compare these things, is you begin to see the distance that there is between God's original created order and his design and where we actually are as a society. We are a long way down a very slippery slope and God's word says that righteousness exalts a nation but it is a disgrace for any people to relish in sin. 
We are a nation that is living in disgrace. We are reveling in it. We are wallowing in it. And it brought to mind that great proverb that God's speaking of, of, a, of, of a beautiful woman. I thought about it in application to the nation. I'm sure it can be said that like a gold ring in a pig's snout, so is a beautiful country that has no discretion. Where does all of this leave us? Well, that's a bigger discussion than we have time for this morning. In regards to our nation's future, I do not know, at least in the short term. And time will tell. And whether God sees fit to bring about some kind of revival, some kind of change through the church on the basis of the truth, I do not know. But this morning, I want to focus more on this issue. What about the individual? Where does this leave you as a sexual sinner? There are two things that are crystal clear in our text this morning. One is that your sin has separated you from God, and it has barred you from his kingdom, and that you are under his judgment and doomed for his wrath. But the Bible just as quickly says another thing, and that is that it doesn't have to be this way. There is hope of a certain deliverance for every sexual sinner. Let's read together from 1 Corinthians. We'll pick it up in chapter 6 and verse 9. We pick up in the middle of an argument, and Paul reasons with the Corinthian church and he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Lord, we ask that by that same spirit you would open the minds of the unbelieving. Lord, that you would instruct and feed your people that we might grow to understand you and to glory in the the wonder of the gospel and all that you've accomplished through the shedding of your blood through your righteous life, through your resurrection from the dead. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there hope for sexual sinners? Now you might say, I'm not a sexual sinner. Jesus says otherwise. It goes all the way down to the core of your being that that we are not as we should be. I don't think there's ever been a person apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who's ever lived on this planet who's gotten sex right. If you have questions about that, we can talk. But the Bible's answer to this question of is there hope for us as sexual sinners is a resounding yes. A couple of weeks ago, you remember I introduced the the Canadian C4 bill which forbids any sort of conversion therapy. There must be no attempt on the part of any counselor or any church or any government agency or any psychologist to to confront or to change a a transgendered person or a homosexual individual, even to say that, that any other form of sexuality is to be preferred. There is to be no counsel and no confrontation that somehow would would presuppose that anybody should turn away from their preferred orientation. Now that is ironic. It is ironic because the whole whole purpose and premise of the church is to see people converted, to see people changed, to see people transformed. It's not only the purpose of the church, but it's the very purpose of God himself. That's why we exist. That's why he sent his son. So while the church is not much on therapy, we are real big on conversion. We're very pro-conversion. We relish, don't we, in our own conversion, that we are not who we once were, 
that we are not enslaved any longer to those things which once bound us. Some time ago I was rummaging through some boxes and I came onto my seventh grade yearbook. I was an Evie Kane wildcat. And as I flipped through, I got to the last page and you know the, the day when everybody signs and writes their little note. Somebody wrote a note to me that says, Dear Dave, don't ever change. Love whoever. I I don't even recall who it was. And I thought to myself, what a nightmare. (laughs) What a nightmare. If a 13-year-old were to remain a 13-year-old in all of their confusion and fumbling about, we praise God for converting power. We thank God for the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he accepts us, yes, as we are, but he does not leave us there, does he? He transforms us by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, listen. What we're talking about has everything to do with hope. I was just talking to a sister in Christ this morning, and I mentioned something about Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, you know, I was part of that program, but they left me in my sin. And we had a conversation about how that 12-step program, by very well-meaning people, seeks to help alcoholics, if we use the term, the Bible's word is a drunkard, it seeks to tell alcoholics, look, you have a disease, and the best you can do is learn to cope with it. The Bible offers far more than that. The Bible says, yes, you are enslaved to sin, but I would give you hope, says Jesus, in the power of my gospel and the indwelling Holy Spirit that that sin will no longer bind you any longer. You will be set free from that through faith in me. You have hope of deliverance, not merely learning to cope with your sin. We have the hope of heaven because of conversion, which is why we cannot go along with this bill or any other bill that would tell us we cannot confront sinners about their sin. Apart from confronting sinners about their sin, sinners will never never desire even to, to flee from the wrath to come. You see, this has everything to do with hope. When we talk about hope, we are talking about change. You have hope of being healed when you are sick. You have hope of peace when you are at war. You have hope of freedom when you are in bondage. You have hope for the resurrection unto life when you know you are headed for a grave. Paul hits this in Romans 8. He says, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it, and that's just it. God makes us promises that he will, in the end, complete what he has started. He will deliver us fully from this world and from its lusts and from our sin, from the kingdom of the evil one. You see, biblical hope is for change, for the demonstration of God's power making us what we are not. Which is why making people feel normal or comfortable with sin is absolutely the wrong way to go. It destroys hope and it leaves people in their sin and ultimately in death. The Bible's message is crystal clear. Be converted or be condemned. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are weighed down with the burden of your sin, 
with the knowledge that you are under the wrath of God, that there is an eternal life ahead of you and you know that God is displeased with you, I would say to you in no uncertain terms that there is hope for you But you must first understand something. You must understand that you are under the judgment of God. You must understand that your sin is a real thing for God. And he is set against you just as you are set against him. As long as you remain in your sins, he is holy and he cannot even look on sin, let alone be around a sinner. Look at verse nine. Or do you not know Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a simple statement. And you can almost hear Paul's tone in this, can't you? Paul has covered these things before with the Corinthians, and he he says to them in the plainest of language, look, you get this, right? We, We are crystal clear about this, that the unrighteous, that sinners, will not inherit the kingdom of God. By kingdom of God, he just means the sphere of salvation. You will not inherit eternal life. You will not go to heaven. You will not be with God in his kingdom. And then he cautions the Corinthians against any sort of delusion or deception. And by implication, again, what that tells us is deception is a very real possibility here. It is easy for people to sit in a pew and yet be bound for eternal wrath. He says to the Corinthians, do not be deceived. You see, sinful men have always been soft on sin and wrong about God. Sin isn't that big of a deal, and God's really not that grumpy about it. He'll grade on a curve, he's gonna accept me, at least I'm not as bad as my neighbor. That is not the way it works with God. It's very common for people to be confused about this, and you can hear it in the language of people. If you just go to a memorial, you'll hear a lot about a better place. You'll hear a lot about so-and-so looking down on us. You talk to people about faith in Christ, and you will, you will ask them how they plan to get into heaven, and most will tell you, um, I've been pretty good. I've done X, and I've done Y. This is not the way the kingdom of God operates. You need to understand this, that the kingdom of God is a perfectly righteous kingdom with a perfectly righteous king, and there will be no one who enters into that kingdom who is not perfectly righteous. And you say, then I'm out, because who's perfect? I've got good news for you. God will give you his perfect righteousness if you will but trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will ready you himself for heaven. Paul here is not embracing a works righteousness. He's pointing to the fact, Corinthians, that genuine faith will always produce the fruit of genuine faith, which is good fruit. It is the fruit of godliness. In other words, Corinthians, if you're in the kingdom of God, you will know it because there will be a likeness to God in the way you live your life. We are a changed people. We are not who we once were. We are new creatures in Christ. And Paul is at the same time saying that no matter what a man professes about faith in Christ, no matter what a woman says about her confidence in Jesus, if there is not marked likeness to Jesus, if there is not an obedient desire in the heart of that believer, if that individual is somebody who has nothing to do with pleasing God, has no heart to please him, has no concern for obedience, just continues in the pattern of life that they've chosen from the beginning, then that person has no hope or confidence that they will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter what they profess. And so we're left here with two very straightforward statements. Number one, um, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is vile and it has deadly consequences and they are certain. And number two, we are left with this reality that there is a great danger that any one of us may be deceived about this. We're vulnerable to it. 
And our flesh tends towards a light attitude towards sin and we can be easily deluded about God's holiness and the fact that he will judge in righteousness. Then Paul catalogs for us a representative list of the sinful lifestyles that will keep people from, this, from the kingdom of heaven. Again, I, I want to say this. This is not a complete list, but it is a representative list. Look back with me again at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here's his list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Stop right there. I want you to make note of the sins that Paul lists first. He begins with the word fornicator. That is simply the word for someone who engages in sexual immorality. This is a person that is involved in any of the the various kinds of sexual sin that pollute our society. Everything from porn to petting to promiscuity to prostitution to pedophilia, any of those things, all of them are swept up into this term fornicator. There is a second term. It is the word idolater. This word is also included oftentimes with sexual sin for obvious reasons. One is that sexual sin is idolatry. It's disobedience to God. It's pursuing what I want, what I think will satisfy me. It's worshiping your, your, your lusts rather than worshiping God. It is to love pleasure more than it is to love God. It's also associated with idolatry or with sexuality because so many of the pagan religions of this time actually performed acts of worship by engaging with a temple prostitute. He then says adulterers, you know what that is, those are married people who engage in sexual relationships outside of marriage. And then he calls out the effeminate. This word literally means soft. It is the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. It was used of of young boys who were castrated. You've read the term in the the Bible, the, the word eunuch. This was the idea. The word eunuch literally means to tend the bed, to keep the bed. Oftentimes kings or those in authority who had vast harems would would get men and they would castrate them for obvious reasons. It kept the harem safe. It's also true that many of these eunuchs were used by those powerful men homosexually. And then Paul talks about the homosexual here, those who corrupt God's good and complementary design of man and woman. Here's the thing I want you to note. Nearly every list in the New Testament that catalogs the sins that will keep people out of the kingdom of heaven are headlined by sexual sin. Now why is that? You can think on that. Flip over with me to the right, to the book of Galatians. We're just gonna look at a few of these. Galatians chapter five. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Galatians five and verse 19. Paul catalogs again the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Here they are. You'll hear an echo of our own text. Immorality, that's the word fornication. Literally, it's porneia. It's, it's, the idea is we get pornography from it. It's sexual immorality. Then he says impurity. That's the word acatharsia. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uncleanness. Then he says sensuality. Asilgeia. It, it means absence of all moral restraint. It's the idea of unrestrained desires, just open indecency. All of these things are related to sexual sin. He sticks idolatry in there next. We just saw that. So the first four sins listed here are the same that we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to look at the end of verse 21 just for the sake of time. He says, 
of these things or things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flip over one more book to the right. Let's go to Ephesians chapter four. Look at the end of verse 18. He's referring to the unbeliever here who's darkened in their understanding. And then it says, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over. Here's our word again, sensuality. This is, this is another word, planexia. Uh, this, I'm sorry, no, this is back to asogia again. This is that absence of moral restraint. The absence of moral restraint. Look at how they did this. They have become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with, greediest, with, with greediness. There's planexia. The idea is to have more. I just want more. I want more than my fair share. They pursue these things with greediness. Ephesians chapter five and verse three, just down the page. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthy talk or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, again there's the idea of greed, who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Do you see? It's the same theme over and over again. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is what they are characterized by. What are you saying, Dave? If I commit sexual sin, I'm out of the kingdom of heaven. That is not what I'm saying. Paul is talking about a life that's never been converted to Christ. Paul is talking about a life of people who are given to the pattern of life of neglecting God's standards and pursuing whatever they want in this realm because they're in charge and not him. Colossians 3, we'll look at one more in chapter, five, or chapter 3 and verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Here are words again. You hear them? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. That's epithumia. That's lust. Over-desire again. And greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. You see, you compare these texts and what you hear is the panting of our nation's lusts and the, and the, and the, the defilement of these, these insatiable sexual excesses in which our culture lives. And the testimony of Scripture is crystal clear. Is it not consistent passage by passage by passage that these are the very things to, to live a sexually immoral life, to live as one who is sexually impure, to, to let loose in unrestrained desire, to, to pull off all moral restraint, to live sensually is to cut yourself off from God, it is to cut yourself off from the kingdom of God, and it is to be under God's wrath. If you are not in Christ this morning, you should feel no comfort in thinking about your eternal destiny. If we can go back to being a wildcat at Evie Kane in the seventh grade in the mid-70s, envision a gymnasium where a bunch of 13-year-olds are kind of uncomfortably dancing in circles with one another, turning round and round to, to, to the number one hit of the time. 
if we had time, I'd ask you for what you think it is. But a lady by the name of Debbie Boone sang a song called, You Light Up My Life. And I will never forget it. I, I, it, it hit me at 13. One of the closing lines of the last stanza of that song says, It can't be wrong when it feels so right. And I thought, you know, after last week's Kanye disaster, I have got to look this up and make sure I'm right about the singer and right about the lyrics and right about... So I went and I typed in those lyrics and I got on a website and I was astonished at what I found. Do you know that that lyric is found in dozens of songs? Elvis sings one. The Righteous Brothers, Barbara Mandrell, Dolly Parton, Rihanna. There was even a duet by Kermit and Miss Piggy. (laughs) Every single genre, rock, country, pop, every generation, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it just goes on. What is it about a line like that 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 our culture finds so appealing? Why is it that a line like that sends that song up the pop chart? Why does that resonate? Because it is the song of the rebel heart. It is the dance of individuals and it is the dance of a culture that has defied God. Who is he to rule over us? If it feels right, it is right. How could it be otherwise? You see, Paul wants you to understand, sexual sinner, that sin is sin. No matter how it makes you feel, and he wants you to understand that if you choose to continue down that path, you will perish. The list broadens out from here. Look back at verse 9 in 1 Corinthians. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, these things are inconsistent with the Christian life. These things are inconsistent with the Spirit of God in a man. And everyone who is marked by them, again, this is your pattern of life to which you give yourself freely. We're not talking here about a Christian wrestling with sexual sin. We're talking about those who go for it, who indulge in it, who have never rightly come under to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If these things still characterize your life, you need to be converted. You need to be changed. What is it that the Lord requires of you when I say you need to be converted? Well, it's simply two things. You must repent and you must believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in his first sermon, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So what does it mean to repent? Repentance literally is a change of the mind. It is a change of the mind so that I agree with God's assessment about sin, about the reality of sin in my own life and my need to turn from serving myself to serving him, to turning away from my sinful determinations as to what's right and wrong and to take his at face value and count them as my own. It is a change of mind that results really in a change of direction. And I want to say this to you this morning, if you find yourself enslaved in sexual sin, that you are going to need to deal with this at a much deeper level than you think. This isn't a matter of just stop doing something. This isn't a matter of putting off an act. It is that, but it's much deeper than that. You see, those sinful acts are just the rotten fruit that grows from a diseased tree. 
all the way down at the roots, you are polluted, just like all of us were. And, and, and that pollution inevitably bears itself out in the fruit of your life. Someone has well said that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And everyone here needs radical heart surgery. You need to be made pure in heart. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the, the, the idol of authenticity in our culture. I don't know if you saw it, but Caitlyn Jenner again just this week praised the, the, the other swimmer I talked about, I forget the last name, Leah somebody, Thomas, thank you, talked about Leah Thomas and that he, he didn't agree with the way the NCAA was going with this, but he was, he was proud of Leah Thomas that Leah, Leah was at least authentic, being his authentic self. And this is that idea again that uh, I'm nothing if I can't be me. You've got to be true to yourself mentality, however you see things, however you feel about things, however you think about things, that if you're going to be authentic, if you're going to be genuine, then you've got to just follow you. Jesus says, no, if you want to be his disciple, you must stop following you. You must deny you. You must take up your cross and follow him. That's what it means to repent. You stop doing you. Each one of us has been taught from you. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. I tell you, if you do that, you will follow your heart right into hell. I want to say this very clearly. Particularly as I'm speaking to those who might be caught up in homosexuality or or a transgender lifestyle. Listen. You cannot know the truth about you by looking within you. The truth about you must come from outside of you. It is something that is revealed to you from God. If I put it another way, your heart simply cannot be trusted. It sends you wrong messages. I know that you feel the way you feel genuinely. But those feelings are messed up. And that is a heart that is deceiving you. You cannot find the truth within you. And this has been the case ever since man has been on the planet after, after our, our, our earliest parents fell, after they sinned. Genesis 6, 5. Listen to this testimony of the heart. I'm just going to read through a few of these. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You say, well, yeah, that's pre-flood. Well, here's post-flood. Genesis 8:21. I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Ecclesiastes 9:3. The hearts of the sons of men are, are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. You know that Jesus said, right, that it's not our external acts that, that demonstrate our sin. First and foremost, the problem's much deeper than that. It's that, Jesus said, that proceeds out of the man that defiles the man. It's from within, out of the heart of man, that come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of covenant, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. You've got a heart problem. The well is polluted at the source, at the level of your thoughts and your plans and your motivations. And so you've got to understand that this is where change begins. It begins with a heart change. And that's something that you cannot do for for yourself. You must ask God for it and tell him that you want it. And this is just the problem with that whole concept of authenticity again. Think about it for a minute. What does authenticity say? It says, I am fine as I am. In fact, I'm true to who I am. I will boast of who I am because essentially I'm good as I am. Again, that posture will land you where you do not want to go. 
We are not good. And God has said we are not good as we are. Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, for all have fallen short, that text tells us, of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of his required standard, of his holiness. And so you've got to begin here. You, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from self and abandon it and turn to Christ. You need a total realignment of your thinking. God created you, therefore he has right to you. God as the creator is also the lawgiver, and he has the right to define the rules. The God who created you and defined the rules also has the right to enforce those rules and enforce them he will with a perfect justice. Sin must be paid for. The question is whether you're going to pay for your sin or whether you will submit yourself and allow the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for your sin when he was struck on the cross. Well, to be converted, you must repent. Secondly, you must believe. And just as in repentance there is a turning away from sin and a turning away from trusting yourself, so in belief, genuine belief, we're not talking about believing some facts, genuine belief turns from sin, but it turns to Christ in genuine, humble faith. It's a turning to God. It's a looking to him to save you. You see, you need to understand what God did in Christ. God sent his son into this world to save sinners. That was the express purpose of his coming down, that he might reveal the holiness of the Father, that you might see in Christ what God is like. Christ would live the life that you and I cannot live because we are sinful and we fail. He was a sinless Man, and he lived a pure and holy life. He attained to the righteousness that God requires. That's how we can be made perfect because God credits that perfection, that righteousness to our account, not on the basis of anything we've done, and that's what everybody misses. We think, I'll show God. I can do that. No, you can't. But he will give you his righteousness if you'll ask him for it, and acknowledge your own sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ not only lived a righteous life, but he came and he suffered and died. Why did he do that? The wages of sin is death. If Jesus never sinned, then why did he get paid the wages? Because he took it in the place of all who would hope on him. That sin had to be punished, and that sin was punished. My sin was punished. Every Christian sin is punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. He took that upon the tree and bore our sins in his body. And beyond that, he was raised from the dead, uh, back again, ascending into heaven, and he will in fact come for his own, and he will come next time in judgment to render to each man what he is due. Here's the amazing thing. All of that, Christ's righteousness, his substitutionary death in your place, resurrection, eternal life in heaven with God, inheriting the kingdom of God, all of that becomes yours through faith in Christ. That is the promise of God. And you say, that's too good. And I say, you're right. But it's true. And God's word is crystal clear about this. And you need to affirm it all as true and you need to also to trust in it to be true. You, we know plenty of people who know all kinds of things about the Bible, but they don't know Jesus. That's the issue. Do you have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, having repented and then trusting in him? Do you have God's Holy Spirit indwell, indwelling you? Have you been rightly reconciled through faith in Christ to the God who made you? whom you've sinned against. See, it's more than just believing facts. The question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible speaks about this in in other ways. It talks about receiving Christ or coming to Christ, hoping in Christ, drawing near to Christ, looking unto Christ, believing in Christ, trusting in Christ. Have you followed Christ? 
You turn to him in sincere faith and repentance and he will give you a new heart and a new spirit and you will have new desires and it won't all be fixed tomorrow, but he will progressively fix you. There's a testimony of a lot of people in here who would be happy to tell you about the reality of what God has done for them. We are not who we used to be. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, they didn't believe it either, so Paul had to to really emphasize this. You're a new creature. The old things, they're gone. And by the way, new things have come. You see, this is the hope of sexual sinners. I'm so thrilled to get to this last verse in the minutes we have remaining. Look Look at verse 11. This is the hope. Conversion is the hope. Salvation is the hope in Jesus Christ for all sexual sinners. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Such were some of you. That is hope in five words. I'll give it to you in one. Conversion. Grace. You see, these Corinthian believers had been transformed. No church in the New Testament is as renowned for their debauchery and promiscuity, especially sexually, as Corinth. In fact, to Corinthian eyes was synonymous with, with sexual sin. It's kind of like telling somebody, I'm going to Vegas for the weekend. People know. That's, that's debauchery. C- Corinth was the center of pagan worship, and, and, and this is where much of that religious prostitution as a means of communing with the gods took place. There were a number of temples there. But here's what I want you to see. These people were transformed. Do you note in verse 11, Paul is not addressing fornicating Christians. He is not addressing Christian adulterers who are committing adultery. He is not addressing people who are bowing down before idols or idolaters. He is not addressing even homosexual Christians, as some would try to convince us that there can be. That's who they used to be. That was the practice of the past. That was yesterday. That's what previously characterized them when they were walking in those sins and indulging in them. But these people had had a radical transformation, a supernatural movement from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. What was it that happened when these Corinthian fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves, et cetera, et cetera, what happened to them when they repented and believed in the gospel? Well, Paul gives us three words. Three things happened to them. Look at them. The first one is washed, but you were washed. And by implication, if they were washed, what does that say about the deeds they were involved in? They were defiling. They were sinful. They were filthy. They were in need of cleansing. But this idea of being washed speaks of a a full forgiveness and a new life. Titus speaks about it in, well, Paul to Titus by the Spirit in chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul writes to Titus and he says, look, we we were saved not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Again, this isn't a works righteousness. We were saved according to God's mercy by the washing of regeneration. That's the word we get new birth from, to be reborn and to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. See, this is the case for every Christian, not some, not super Christians. All Christians are truly regenerated, they are washed, and they are renewed by the Holy Spirit to live in newness of life, a different life. Beyond that, the Corinthians were sanctified. There's the next word. What does that mean? 
Well, the word has the idea of being set apart. This showed that their previous acts also had been unholy. But you see, whereas once they were part of the kingdom of the evil one, walking according to his desires and walking in in sin, indulging in those desires of the mind and and of the heart and of of the act, now all of a sudden they've been transferred to the kingdom of his marvelous light. Now they're characterized by obedience. They've been set apart for God's use. They are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This idea that people would persist in these behaviors and think that Christ has in fact saved them because they tipped their hat to Jesus, that's a false gospel, friends. The true Christian is a converted Christian. No, they were given a holy life, and they were given a holy standing, a new nature and a new heart and a new spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they were empowered to lead a life that honored Christ. A transformed heart results in transformed living. Don't be deceived. They were washed, they were sanctified, and our final word, they were justified which shows this, that that their former lifestyle left them under the weight and the guilt of sin, therefore under the wrath of God. And what God does in justifying us is that he declares us not guilty, even though we are. He declares us not guilty on account that he credits the righteousness of Christ to our account so that our sins are in fact forgiven because of Christ's work on the cross. Christ's righteousness becomes ours because God credits it to us. Therefore, we are clothed in Christ. And therefore, what? We're ready to inherit the kingdom of God. You see, we are accepted as righteous in the sight of God. Washed, sanctified, justified. Imagine the Corinthians listening to this. Former homosexuals sitting in the midst. Former castrated eunuchs. The effeminate sitting in their midst. Men, God has accepted you. He has washed you. He has set you apart. He sanctified you. He has justified you in the name of Jesus Christ. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your slate's been washed bleach white. Holy, blameless, undefiled. Can you imagine? Friends, we've seen it in our own midst. We've seen sinners converted here, have we not? We've seen homosexuals converted here. And I don't know the background of everyone who's come to Christ, but I do know this, that testimony after testimony, my heart is so encouraged because the message is always the same. I was a train wreck and God fixed me. That's right. Whatever your flavor of sin, I was buried in this. I couldn't get out from under it. But Jesus, praise God. The Corinthians could sit there and they could think back over their lives and they could see that that former lifestyle was in fact a former lifestyle. And all in this, all of this in the name of which simply means the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God. This converting work is a powerful work of the Spirit of God in the life of a Christian to cleanse us from sin on account of the work of Christ, to separate us unto holiness, and declare us righteous and fit to inherit the kingdom of God. And my unbelieving friend this morning, those of you who have not come to Christ for salvation, do you see your state in your sin 
under the wrath of God. It is a terrible and a frightening place to be. You don't know if it will be tomorrow. I had a cousin just a week ago was snow skiing and within five days was in the kingdom of heaven. Bacterial infection, perfectly healthy guy, amazing. Are you ready? Because in your present state, you are destined for hell. You are destined from wrath. But I say this in the same breath. God in his kindness did not leave you without hope. There's a way out. And this verse is loaded with hope. Hope of total deliverance from the bondage of defiling sin. Hope that every sin of yours will be expunged from your record. Hope of a life set apart to serve God instead of serving self. Hope of a life that's growing in godliness. Hope that in the gracious, justifying work of God in the life of a believer through faith in Christ that God would make you qualified for heaven and you would have peace with the God that you've been at war with. You would have peace with your creator. For the first time in your life, you will have a clean conscience and freedom and joy and rest. Why would anybody turn away from something like that? And all of it on God's dime. All of it on God's dime. How great will be his wrath on you, my friend, if you look at this immense price that Christ paid and you say, no thanks, I'll try it on my own. There is hope for every sinner. That is the promise of the gospel. Whether you are a sexually immoral man, a homosexual, a drunkard, a thief, or just plain old proud and self-righteous, there is hope for you and it is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will turn away from your sin in repentance and you will turn towards Christ in faith, you will in fact be saved and he will wash you, he will sanctify you, he will justify you. And beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, I have a word to say to you as well very briefly. To those of you who stand now purified, consecrated, and justified in the blood of Jesus Christ, to those of you who are new creatures in Christ, who are made in his likeness, I want to remind you through this text that God has changed us and he has called us to a newness of life. He has given you power to, to, to live obediently and to live a life that honors him. We are not, says Ephesians, to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Those old ways of acting, those old ways of behaving, put them off, put them off. Be holy. As the one who called you is holy, do not be partakers with an, an immoral world. You have been called out of that world. Come out from among them, God says. And he doesn't mean by that have nothing to do with those who are defiled, with those who are sinners. What he's saying is you should not be living that lifestyle. I want you to befriend sinners. I want you. We, sh we ought to be. Christ sends us into the world. That is the mission field, right? We need to befriend unbelievers and tell them of the great glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be engaging our unbelieving neighbors, but this, this does mean that you steer clear of their sin. Let them see your difference. Let your light shine. Let your salt be salty. We had no hope, did we? To live like this, to live like this, except that Christ Jesus gave Himself for us, and every one of you who is in Christ can testify that Jesus Christ is the best friend you've ever had. Yeah, who sticks closer than a brother? Saving, helping, keeping, loving—he's with us to the end. No one comes out of a message that speaks much of sin without a sense of our own sinfulness. 
But we were never saved because we were worthy. We were saved because God is gracious. Christ is a savior and he is a helper. He will keep you. He will love you and he will be with you to the end. Believer, rejoice in your God. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound by hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.